Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're still listening to the Hellens of Christendom podcast, to which you've actually made it to an episode of part of my Montaigne series, named after the French philosopher Michel de Montaigne. Now, these episodes contain brief, critical philosophical analysis on subjects related to my choice, which involve discussions very much similar in structure to the essays of Montaigne. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of Hell to Christendom, and today I'd like to talk about movies and philosophy, which, for those of you that don't know me so well, these are two of my favorite things. Um, definitely up there on the list, I would say, as far as top ten, for sure. But um, not just movies and philosophy, but horror movies and philosophy. I think, you know, of course, I'm very much interested in other mediums outside of books to convey ideas or philosophies and etc. So this could refer to music and of course to movies, but horror is an interesting genre and in looking more deeply into the human condition. That is if it, that is if at least it is a good horror movie. Now, um, of course, when asking the big questions of existence, I typically sought books for answers, right? The vast array of perspectives, analogies, thought experiments, and literature generally was always right for insight. William Golding's The Lord of Flies, Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, and Fyodor Dostoevsky's, one of my favorites, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, with its look on humanity and evil, Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange um, on redemption, and more philosophically significant examples such as Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Um, with its challenging of Nietzschean philosophy amidst themes of love and sex. Um, so those are kind of some of my favorite novels with some philosophical overtones. But while literature has significant ramifications for our search in meaning and what it means to have place in this universe, our search and understanding this world, if possible, our search for God even, we can travel to various areas of life which examine and interest themselves in these same kinds of questions. And I think one area we can look to also is cinema. And of course, what better place to look for explorations in meaning and being and existence than the movies? Questions like, who am I? are being explored in some of my favorite movies. Peter Vare's The Truman Show, um, which he directed the Dead Poets Society as well, fun fact. Charlie Kaufman's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Questions like, is faith a living and driving force in the world, or is it dead? as we see in Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, perhaps one of my top favorite films of all time, definitely top three. Or how does God and justice fit into the order of moral facts in an unnoticed place, such as in Jonathan Hensley's um, The Punisher, as well as in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Now, movies are not philosophical in their own right. The questions tend to arise, not sometimes so naturally, amidst an audience's reception of just what is being seen on the screen. Now, moviegoers, who are not so experienced in the art of cinema as such, may not be aware of the nuances and quirks, if I can say that, that develop dialogue, character, plot, and how all these unify with each other throughout the film. Now, it's in my opinion that if films don't follow this gradual progressing, if I can call it that, towards something, you know, uh, realizations are made, mysteries are illuminated, dialogue shifts and all that, the film falls short of at least what I would consider to be a good movie. Now, of course, there are some films which don't have this element of a gradual progressing towards an end, and I understand that. This isn't to say that, of course, that isn't a good movie or shouldn't be recognized as cinematically significant or what have you. This is just kind of, in my opinion. Now, there are many examples throughout contemporary horror 
such as the recently released French-Belgian coming-of-age horror Raw, which came out in 2017, and B-movie horror, particularly 1960-1980 sci-fi horror. So, for example, Joseph Green's The Brain That Wouldn't Die, one of my favorites, or Jim Wynorski's Chopping Mall in 1986, uh, which exhibit what I'm talking about. The dialogue isn't all that interesting or intelligent, the scares are cheap, and so on. Now, I don't mean to spend too much time on the principles of what differentiates a bad film from a good film. I'm just interested in how cinema is of concern for philosophical questions. Some of the things that I look to that try to fit this criteria of good movie, at least, is, you know, of course, the dialogue. Are the conversations, whether with one another or with oneself, in the film, you know, intelligent? Are they profound? Are they insightful? Are they worth examining a second time? Um, there's also mood, uh, how the film is approached, tone. Is there a utilization of emotions in the film? Are the passions addressed seriously? Uh, how does the film set the tone for human persons? How do people relate in the film? Is the music appropriate for what's being addressed? Is the music even good? <laughs> aesthetics, of course. Is the film aesthetically pleasing? Is there an intention to provide, provide aesthetics at all? Um, and also the finality. Did the ending illuminate anything? Was I left unsatisfied? Was the film merely just a good story? And so on. So those are just kind of my conditions. Now, I have to confess that myself, as I've already mentioned, that I love horror movies. And now, I start with horror first because I suspect that this is the one area I'll have much to say about as a Christian. The reason being is because I know of no better genre than horror, which addresses so dynamically the problems of existence and humanity generally. Arguments, of course, could be made for film noirs, uh, science fiction, and even comedies, yet none, I think, are as raw as the scenarios and realities drafted up in horror films. And I'll start with a few movies just to talk about kind of what are my favorites and to provide some analysis around it. Um, first, The Wicker Man, the original one, not the horrible recent one with Nicolas Cage, but let's start with my all-time favorite film, um, at least horror film, I should say. Now, this, of course, as I say, is meant to be contrasted with the absolutely abysmal remake by Neil Laboot in 2006. So I say recent, but it was some time ago. Now, the original film from 1973 starred the horror giant Christopher Lee, a literal giant at that, standing at six foot five, and starred Edward Woodward, who both of these men are two fantastic actors with an absolutely impressive uh, record. Now, of course, we'll talk about Christopher Lee in a second, but the film's basic plot was about a Scottish police sergeant named Neil Howie who travels to an isolated island called Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a little girl by the name of Rowan Morrison. When he arrives to the island, he meets a community of individuals who believe and practice an outdated sort of paganism and a sort of ritualistic religiosity. Now, for example, the first night of his stay at the Green Man Inn, a little sort of motel, he notices a crowd of young people fornicating in public, just kind of having sex openly on the lawn. He observes their fascination with the year's coming harvest and the gods of fertility, and eventually he comes to meet the island's apparently um, graceful leader, Lord Summer Isle, that is Christopher Lee. Now, the film essentially ends with Sergeant Howie discovering that he was duped. Um, spoiler alert to follow. Uh, Rowan Morrison was not missing at all, and is in fact not the sacrifice for this year's harvest, but the sergeant is. He is taken and placed inside of the Wicker Man, which is a large wooden structure, um, probably first used by early Celtic pagans, and it resembles 
a person or god containing Sergeant Howie and several livestock throughout the limbs of the structure. So there's like some ducks or swans or whatever and like the arms and legs. And then Howie is right in the center. Now the wicker man is then set on fire, killing Sergeant Howie while Lord Summer Isle and the rest of the community sing around the flames. Roll credits. Now, according to Cinefantastique, a film magazine which ran from about 1967 and ended in about 2006, considered The Wicker Man to be the, quote, Citizen Kane of horror movies. Now, this description is what initially drew me to viewing the film in the first place, since I figured that I loved Citizen Kane, which came out in 1941. Um, it was directed by Orson Welles, which you need to see that if you have it. Um, though there are remarkable differences between, of course, the feet of the two, I find the comparison absolutely justifiable. The most significant aspect of the film is that it is one of the only horror films, to my knowledge, which accurately and almost as if persuasively, expresses a Christian worldview. That is, Sergeant Howie is actually a devout Christian. This element in the film isn't merely subtle, but quite pervades exactly how Sergeant Howie views the community, not as a police officer, but as a Christian. It is almost as if the dichotomy throughout the film from his Christian faith to their paganism becomes sharper and sharper as time goes on. So two significant scenes stand out to me on this point. Now, first is a scene where Sergeant Howie approaches Lord Summerisle at his compound talking about the obscenity of young people who frolic naked over fire pits and they fornicate openly in public uh, and also their teachings of sex, which he has a number of problems with, and so on. And Lord Summerisle makes the point that it is important that the young generations be made aware that the old gods are not dead. And then Sergeant Howie sternly retorts, And what of the true god? to whose glory and churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Thou, sir, what of him? Lord Summerisle finishes, God is dead. Can't complain. He had his chance in modern parts and blew it. What's amazing to me, and actually pretty hilarious, is that several seconds go by after Summerisle makes this statement, to which Howie stands up, not even breaking eye contact, and the camera zooms instantly on his face, and he just looks at him and goes, what? <laughs> anyway, it doesn't sound as funny as I probably described it, but that scene is like one of my favorites of all time. Um, for those of you that are just real fans of Nietzsche and that whole God is dead phenomena, even especially the God is dead theology that you find in the 60s, um, it's great. Definitely go watch it. The second scene in mind involves the greatest line said by a Christian in a horror movie awaiting to be killed ever, in my opinion. After being captured and made aware that he will be the sacrifice for this year's harvest, Sergeant Howie brilliantly finishes the film. I believe in the resurrection. It is I who will live again, not your damned apples. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, so my analysis of this film. Now, The Wicker Man is one of the best representations of Christian theology actively working as an antagonist against some non-Christian worldview. In my opinion, this is what I think, at least as far as secular cinema goes. Precisely, it is a collision of worldviews, albeit the cultic community depicted in the film is an extreme example among others. The film nonetheless takes such outstanding circumstances and pits them against the reality of a genuinely Christian experience, which in this film, I think, draws on suffering. Now, Sergeant Howie, that is Edward Woodward, um, established himself as theologically and morally principled, yet inescapably human capable of the same temptations and frustrations that plague even his pagan counterparts. The film has also, interestingly, been dubbed as an exercise in what's known as holy terror, 
with the film's exploration into theological anxiety and being post-death of God. So this is actually, as I mentioned, really interesting for those that are um, invested in death of God theology or at least in radical orthodoxy, that this film actually is a part of a genre known as holy terror and addresses these themes of theological anxiety, as I've kind of mentioned, and how one is amidst um, a post-death of God society. Now, the academic implications are rampant, so really too much so to dive into a serious study for my purposes here. Now, otherwise, the film is, in my opinion, a rather lightweight sort of horror movie um, in that there are no violent killings or torture, gore, jump scares, or anything of that sort. The mystery and creepiness of the townspeople is really what sets the tone for the entire film. Now, as to Christopher Lee. Now, to my knowledge, he holds the world record for the most screen credits, at least at the time of my making this podcast, having appeared in some 250 films and also holding the record for most films with a sword fight at 17 in total. Now, Christopher Lee can speak French, German, and Italian, where he actually used these capabilities to hunt Nazis with the Central Registry of War Criminals and Security Suspects. He also hunted Nazis with Ian Fleming, the writer of the Bond novels, the James Bond novels, who was also his step-cousin. He also made an album called Charlemagne, The Sword and the Cross, which he uh, debuted uh, in 2010, and it was a symphonic metal band concept created by Lee when he was 91. And Lee was also educated at Cambridge. Um, Yeah, hands down, one of the most amazing actors uh, of all time. But moving forward, not to delve too much on him, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which, to be honest, I kind of hated the first one, which I I liked it. I did. It's just, there was just the scene at the dinner table that, that's probably the only scene that like kind of messed me up the most out of the entire film. Um, I didn't really care about anything else. But it wasn't until the second one, that sort of black comedy uh, came out, that I absolutely loved it, or at least kind of loved what the film came to show. Um, I will keep this treatment more brief than my last one. I currently own both of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacres by Toby Hooper on DVD. not bragging. (laughs) I decided to try my hand at this caliber of horror because I don't typically enjoy torture or brutality. I'm very familiar um, with the crimes and serial killer Ed Geend, um, with which apparently this is the serial killer from whom the film found its inspiration. And I can't really revisit the first film as it now sits in the very, very back of my film collection. It's I literally have this film collection that goes back three or four or five rows, and I think it's literally on the last row, one of the last DVDs, so that I, I don't want to look at it. <laughs> Just that weird to me. Anyway, um, the sequel to that movie, released in 1986 under the same director, took a different approach from the first one. The film was just apparently ridiculous on purpose. The comedic and the the comedic element, excuse me, in the film wasn't very explicit, but you could tell that even in the film's worst happenings, a kind of seriousness was avoided. Now, the film basically centers around the murderous Sawyer family, um, including Chop Top Sawyer, Drayton Sawyer, and Leatherface, who comes across a late-night radio show host by the name of Vanita and a police lieutenant by the name of Enright, who's played by Dennis Hopper. Now, the only surviving victim of the first film happens to be the lieutenant's daughter, who seeks revenge on the murderous family. Now, details aside, the film comes to an end with 
Lieutenant Lefty Enright bursting into the family's lair, singing Bringing in the Sheaves, and he's yielding dual chainsaws. It's, I mean, it's pretty awesome. In the brawl between the family and the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant and Vanita, the radio host, ensue for some 10 to 15 minutes until the credits finally roll. Now, the film didn't really expect much. Its initial crafting was intended for horror, although Toby Hooper ended up drafting a version for canon films, which then premiered as a black comedy. The film only made $8 million on its $4.5 million budget, and all the while received a fortunate cult following uh, much later. Now, the redeeming quality in this film, for me, is not only the ridiculous humor it employs, but the subtle approach in which the family looms justice. For me, horror films, by their very nature, implant a hole within us, something hopefully a good ending or a good sequel can finally fill. Now, with the first film, I experienced just astonishment. What did I just watch? With the second film, I was given a cheap, but totally worth it, redemption for the first. Lieutenant Enright singing Bringing in the Sheaves, um, a gospel hymn originally crafted by Protestant Christians in the mid-1800s, is a great element of justice in this film. Now, this justice, although perverted and driven by anger, permeates the horrible reality where this murderous family resides. The lesson really becomes what has been done has been returned twofold unto them. And I think this explains why Enright brought double the chainsaw power with him, whereas Leatherface only had, of course, the one. Hence, the film imagines a fantastic, gross, unrealistic perspective on what the power of God looks like, perverted, when put in human hands. Now, Leatherface could be the archetypal expression of this. While being lied to his entire life that he was not made in the image of God, he has pursued other images that is, faces, and idols for his pursuit of the true and the ultimate. In the second film, you lose the sense that Leatherface is a presence, um, an evil force that only erects when seemingly disturbed. In the second film, Leatherface has a better sense of protection, sympathy, and punishment even than in the first film. And finally, of course, let's not forget to mention even the, re the remakes over the last 10 years. And even though I should mention I didn't really care for them, Although, let's not forget Kim Henkel's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A New Generation, which came out in 1994, and had the most bizarre performance by Matthew McConaughey as Vilmer Slaughter. I'll let you guys um, resort to that Google search. And finally, The Babadook, which came out in 2014. Uh, I was drawn to this film from my very first viewing. When movies just don't quite sit right with me, I love it. That means that I've been given a lot to think about. There's a lot of information, a lot of subtlety that needs to be processed and taken in for me to grasp just what the movie is putting forward. Now, this film included the directorial debut of Australian actress Jennifer Kent, um, which it should also be mentioned that she was the director of the 2005 short film Monster, even though it was kind of loosely based on this same film. So it's currently her only film title debate that or her only current film title to date, uh, Babadook. But like I said, there's a short film, which she has on the back end, but really this is kind of the only one at present. The film didn't seem to cause too much buzz on the charts as it only amassed seven and a half million dollars out of its $2 million budget. Um, now, the film's basic plot consists of a mother and son living in Australia. The boy seems to have some behavioral problems, such as carrying weapons in his backpack to school, climbing play playgrounds when he isn't supposed to, and so on. Now, one night, the boy asks his mom to read a bedtime story called The Babadook. 
a book which she's never seen before. When she reads the book, weird things start to happen in the house. She starts to have hallucinations about this creature, uh, man, monster, whatever it is, wanting to take her, wanting to wanting her to kill her dog and ultimately uh, kill her son. And the film ends with a kind of confrontation scene taking place between the Babadook and the mother, whereby she learns to contain it in the basement of the house by feeding it worms occasionally. Roll credits. Um, now, this film definitely scores high on the aesthetic scale, at least for me anyway. Apart from the stunning visuals, the film approaches a very sensitive and intense aspect of, of human reality that is suffering and tells that struggle through a sort of cerebral lens where the monster functions as a kind of psychological analogy for the mother's already pre-existing trauma and anxiety about the death of her husband. Now, in trying to figure out just what exactly the Babadook is, um, you know, a monster in this movie world, a demon, a ghost, after a while, you lose sense of the Babadook's supernatural presence, and instead, a kind of psychological object develops. In other words... I think it's a mistake to view the Babadook as a kind of demon which has supernatural capabilities to manipulate humans. The, the Babadook might be more appropriately dubbed as the demons this woman carries with her amidst losing her husband, her lack of intimacy, her lack of sleep, the bad relationship with her son, and so on. How else could a film depict the hardships such a woman would face? In the final moments of her husband's life, the film refers constantly back to this event so that her memory of her husband's last words constantly berate her. Quote, it looks like it's going to rain today. The mother takes this phrase and projects it onto this Babadook where the phrase almost becomes a taunt. In our worst sufferings, does not our memory always remind us of our failures? And it's really as if our memory makes things worse. So I think then the reality of the woman's suffering was brilliantly depicted with this film's intermixing world of childlikeness and adult suffering. As a psychological horror, I think this synthesis was done perfectly. That is to say that really the, the Babadook, I think anyway, acts as an analogy for the suffering and anxiety we are challenged to face in our own humanity. The question of how we respond, of course, is even tied in the film's ending. So those are all the thoughts that I have regarding philosophy, cinema, and some of my favorite horror movies and how they pertain to addressing a philosophy existence or at least thinking a little bit deeper about the human situation or the human person. Now, as I always say at the end of these videos, thank you so much and God bless you for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the very end. I never usually intend for these videos to get, or these videos, these podcast episodes um, to get as long as they end up getting. So thank you so much for finding the time to sit down and actually listen. But of course, God bless you. Be sure to follow the page if you already haven't at WordPress, Hellenistic Christendom by Stephen Dunn, which you can also find me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And of course, usual places where podcasts are found because reminding you that yes, you are here on the Hellenistic Christendom podcast, but also I have my other podcast, which is very new, still in its stages of infancy, but Unadulterated Theology is its name, and it addresses more specifically or particularly issues surrounding sex work and pornography, and of course, by approximation, issues pertaining to gender, feminism, and so on. So I encourage you to check that out, um, and yeah, thank you so much. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.